Hello and welcome to Preprints in Motion. Join us as we sit down with early career researchers and discuss their latest preprint and find out about their journey through the muddy marshes of academia. But we don't stop there. Every month we'll be bringing you special episodes with open science leaders where we discuss how to fix academia. Easy, right? So hit that subscribe button, leave a rating, or find us on Twitter at MotionPod. But for now, let's get into the show. And this week we turn the tables as I take the role of guest and John and Emma co-host to find out all about the pros and cons of preprints. <laughs> okay, so today we're doing a very special episode, which is our second special episode. Today we're going to sit down as a podcast team and discuss the pros and cons of preprints, why you should all definitely be posting preprints and reading preprints and otherwise citing feedbacking and whatever else around preprints as well as normal papers. But to get started, I think it would be nice to introduce the people behind the podcast. Now we've had a few episodes out and some people are listening now. Uh, we have our big fan Elliot up in Sheffield. I'm going to give him a little shout out to make sure he <laughs> actually listens. <laughs> so I will let everyone introduce themselves first. I think Emma, because you, you're the voice that everyone else has, has kind of heard a little bit already. Maybe you should go first. Yeah. So uh, I'm Emma. I'm the producer. So you kind of, I kind of hop in occasionally on the other episodes when I feel like asking a question. Or my internet cuts out. Yeah. Or Johnny's internet cuts out and I have to save the day. But basically I'm, hold on. Do I want to be, what am I introing here? Where, who I am? <laughs> like I so, did a pause so John can I'm... edit that. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, that's saying in, that's gold. <laughs> who you are. So you've done that. We've got your name. Uh, okay, so what what you do on the podcast? Yeah, I've done that. And then I was like, do they care about my post up? <laughs> uh, yeah, talk, talk, yeah, what you do on the podcast, talk a little about your, your you know, your post-talk, where you come from, little life story. <laughs> You've heard the previous episodes. Right. It doesn't have to be a long life story. John's will be a long one. We can, you know. <laughs> so um, I'm a postdoc at the University of Cambridge in the Dementia Research Institute. And my work basically focuses on neurodegeneration. So um, I do a couple of projects working in the Metsocopian lab. Big shout out to Manos. <laughs> Does he listen? I don't know. Probably not. But <laughs> doing the shout out anyway. <laughs> and my projects are kind of split between looking at um, enteric neurons in Parkinson's disease and doing a high throughput CRISPR screen while also looking at mitochondria ER contact sites and also doing a high throughput CRISPR screen uh, looking into novel modulators of those. Um, as you can probably tell, or maybe you can't, we'll see. I'm originally from Newcastle. I did my undergraduate in Sheffield and absolutely loved it. Uh, so much so that I stayed on and did my PhD and pretty much did not want to leave. <laughs> and this is where I met John and Johnny and quite a few of the other PhD students. Um, and they got me into basically learning about and promoting preprints. I don't think, I don't think any of us wanted to leave Sheffield. No, I know. The the accent might not come across. Apparently, I discovered the other weekend I have a radio voice. Yeah, you don't sound very Geordie on the. Um, I didn't think I sounded Geordie anyway, but apparently, yeah, <laughs> apparently, apparently, I have a voice. Uh, the other thing to, to to mention about Emma, of course, is that you are a fellow pre-lighter. Yes, you I can am. Push pre-lights a little bit. We like we like pre-lights. I forgot about that. <laughs> we'll get into what that is later in the show. Yeah. All right, go on then, John. John's up next. 
Okay, <laughs> my turn. Hi guys. Uh, so I'm John. Uh, I'm the editor. So you you won't have won't have heard my voice as uh, part of the podcast yet. Apart from well, apart from in the ASAP Bio advert where I uh, pop in uh, my my finest Oscar winning performance. Um, so I'm currently a postdoc at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine um, in the Ranson Lab. So again, big shout out to my supervisor Hillary and all the people at LSD. Do they listen? Are we are we just giving free shout outs? Here? I have no idea. <laughs> I i I think there are a couple of people in the office who who might sort of just shout out to John's out. office then. um so yeah so i work on uh, mosquito chemosensory proteins so um these are kind of proteins that mosquitoes have in their legs and antennae um and they basically bind to kind of odorant molecules as they kind of drift in from the outside world and then deliver them to receptors on the nerve so that the the mosquitoes can have this kind of enhanced sense of smell the problem is that one of these uh, proteins in particular called sap2 happens to also bind insecticides that get used in um, bed nets and things to prevent the spread of malaria and basically uh, sap2 binds to um, the insecticides and stop them working so we're trying to find a way of stopping that from happening so that the insecticides work again and so we can save the world from malaria well done john <laughs> <laughs> editing breaks there i know it's no, the pauses <laughs> Yeah, John John clearly doesn't do his talking without thinking about how he's going to edit himself to sound amazing afterwards. I will, yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, yes, obviously, I, I did my uh, PhD at Sheffield as well. That's how I uh, how I know Johnny and Emma. Um, and that was in kind of insect RNA interference, um, again, as a, a possible alternative to kind of chemical pesticides. Um, so I sort of accidentally ended up as a sort of molecular entomologist, uh, entirely not by design. Um, that what, what else did Emma say at the end of that? Maybe we should have said what, what hobbies are. We, you know, we it. can do that now and we can add it back in. <laughs> <laughs> do where you're from, do your hobbies, and then Emma can do her hobbies and then I'll jump back in where I think I remember what I was going to jump into. Or we could just leave all this in. <laughs> I think we should have a blooper reel. Show, for show everyone how professional it really is. Uh, I'm, I'm originally from Derby uh, and I also do not have the accent. I just have a painfully middle class university accent. You're currently um, recording from Derby as well. We should, we should shout, shout I'm out to John's parents. Shout out to literally everyone. <laughs> yeah, literally everyone we know. Hi to everyone that we know that's listening. It's uh, we're we're very glad to have you with us uh, on this journey. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, we're doing hobbies as well. Then are we? So uh, I climb as a, as a as does Johnny, and I play piano, saxophone. I've had a go at various other instruments over the years. So music is my other thing. I'm a fan of getting lost in the countryside on big walks and stuff. Uh, I once actually uh, during lockdown walked from. Derby to Sheffield because it seemed like a good idea which gives you a, a level of the insanity at which I operate and then you still managed to party afterwards when you got there yeah I know. Uh, I, I'm, I'm surprised you haven't thrown in the fact that you uh, of course wrote the podcast music oh yes uh, well I, I was being modest oh. um, <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, so, uh, so so the music at the start and end um, and the little snippet in the middle as well that we have either side of the adverts everything you hear is me the piano saxophone the thing that sounds like a drum which is actually me hitting an empty saxophone case there you go that's the the magic behind the uh behind the technique emma would you like to share your hobbies with us seeing as john has just shared his in an out of order sequence <laughs> yes yeah, so um i have a few different things i like to do outside of science as well like i do participate in like organizing quite a lot of social events at my institute and kind of promoting ERCs. But in addition to that, I'm a dark blue belt in jiu-jitsu, so I'm one-off instructor. And hopefully when we're allowed to train again, I'll be able to take my brown belt grading and basically become, like might be able to run my own club. And at the minute I'm training towards like a half marathon. And then this morning I do some netball as well. So quite a lot of sporty things. Um, it helps me get out of the lab. <laughs> but you do sound very, very sporty seeing all that in one yeah. go. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't quite realize how much sports you do. 
<laughs> the jujitsu is good. It means we, uh, on a night out, we never fear walking down dark alleys. You've got Emma with us. It's, uh... I mean, <laughs> Emma's beat me up a few times. I fear Emma. Don't say this. I'm lovely. <laughs> so uh, I guess my voice is the one everyone's heard the most so far here, apart from when we have guests on. I am a postdoc at the William Harvey Research Institute as part of Queen Mary University of London at the moment. Before that, I had a brief stint as a postdoc in Cambridge with, with Emma. Different lab. Definitely different lab. Definitely different lab. Different lab. <laughs> yeah, different research institute. Let's be very clear about my experience in Cambridge. Before that, I met these two up in Sheffield where we all did our PhDs together. And we kind of stuck together since. It's been quite nice, actually. Put out there. A group of other people as well who aren't part of the podcast, uh, who we, we love dearly. My scientific interests are primarily focused around the immune system, and I quite like big picture thinking, so I just like figuring out how the immune system works. At the moment, that means I'm looking at how neutrophils traffic around the body and how they interact with T-cells. Before that, my PhD was focused on the immune cells within flies. So flies have these things called hemocytes, which are essentially macrophages. And my PhD, very simply, was just to prove that these macrophages in flies exist as M1, M2, pro or anti-inflammatory macrophages. Really, really easy stuff, or so I thought. Uh, outside the lab, I'm a little bit musical too, I guess. I, pl I play, or rather collect guitars, just looking at them all in the corner. There's way too many there for someone who doesn't play for any kind of audience. Uh, I also climb quite a lot, and I'm trying to be sporty, but I don't like it. It's, it makes me unhappy, but I'm getting, I'm getting on it. We should go for a run, Johnny. I'll come to London. We can do a run. Uh, I'll walk, I'll, I will walk very, very slowly about a mile or two behind you. Oh, I'll watch. I'll cycle. Actually, no. I'll, I'll cycle along with you. I, I, I've, get, I've got quite into cycling recently. Yes, yeah, I can't even cycle with you. I just fall off the thing. I think we should. Uh, I think we should pause and say there because that will that will all be very seamless in the uh, the final thing. But I'm going to leave this bit in that you wouldn't believe how much editing we did there and how many mistakes we all made <laughs> during those intros. So, just to give you some idea of the level of professionalism we have as a podcast. This, this is so, what happens when you put everyone on the spot, John. Yep. So, <laughs> which, speaking of which, is exactly what we're about to do to me. So, because you don't hear my voice enough on this show. What we're going to do in this episode is just take a whole episode to talk about what preprints are, their history, and some of the main concerns people have around preprinting their work or using preprints. And so to do this, I'm going to take the resident expert role, which is slightly laughable, and Emma and John are going to take over as host and ask me a bunch of questions that I've, I've only really skimmed through. So let's see how this goes. I mean, you're lucky you got like a sneak peek at them, right? <laughs> Usually we don't give the questions out. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is true. Yeah, we should. I think we should have hidden them from yeah. him. Uh... <laughs> Put you on the spot. Who wants to start then? Um, I guess I'll start. I'll take over a little bit. Like, okay, I think we should generally start with trying to get to know and telling our audience if they don't already know what preprints are and where they come from. So could you do like a nice little introduction? A little intro to preprints. A little bit of spiel. <laughs> so... So preprints have been around for quite a while. They've been around at least since the 1990s, uh, but this was in physics and not in bioscience. The reason preprints, I think, certainly for us and our audience, are now coming to the forefront a bit is because in the past ooh, 10 years, there's been a big increase in the usage of preprints within the biosciences. So a preprint, very simply, is a scientific manuscript that has been shared online, usually on a preprint platform or a server, and it is a finished, complete manuscript, in most cases, that is often going to go to a journal. 
So the thing that separates preprint from a peer-reviewed paper is that, that peer review part. So preprints are open to everyone, free, no charge, don't have to pay to deposit them on the server. Anyone can read them. And the big point that differentiates them is that they are not peer reviewed. So these are things that we may have undergone sort of an internal peer review. So when you write a paper, you might send it to your friend who reads it and says, do this differently. But we haven't had that journal organized peer review with preprints. So you've just described basically what preprints are, but why why should we preprint? Like you said, they, they've been around for so long. Why should we start now? So in physics, their whole system slightly different to us. So they their end goal is to preprint, and then publishing is kind of a formality. Whereas in the biosciences, at the moment, the end goal is publishing. Preprints are kind of slotted in there as this step along that, that pathway. But there's a lot of reasons why you should preprint. If you're an early career researcher or you work with early career researchers, which I think is just about everyone, then you should be posting preprints because for early career researchers, there's nothing that's come along for a very long time, I think, in science, actually, that has been so beneficial to our careers. So a preprint lets us show funders, it lets us show hiring committees or anybody else that not only are we productive, but here's what we produced. We can actually say, this is the work we did. You don't have to trust us that we're doing work or we're working on a project because it's out there. A funding body can read that preprint and they can then decide if maybe we're a good scientist or not, or if we do decent work that they want to fund or not. Whereas before that, we had to rely on peer-reviewed papers and anybody who has published so far in their career will tell you that not only does it take a horribly long time to do, but it costs a lot of money and certainly a lot of PhD students, for example, focusing again on the early career researchers, you can very easily finish your PhD and have only just submitted a paper, at which point either you're not around to finish it off for the reviews and so somebody else has to come and do that, or you have to hope you've got someone around who can do that, or you end up staying for an extra year in that lab just to finish off this, this PhD work. Some people I know have done that unfunded, um, which is altogether wrong. And so really what you see with preprints is often it's said, it's said that they speed up the scientific process so you're getting work out quicker. I don't really like that saying. I think it's better to think of it slightly differently. So we're not speeding up signs, we're just releasing signs when it's ready to be released. There's not a lot of people out there who are doing work and saying, I'm going to submit it to a journal who then would not want other people to be able to read it. At that point, the work in the researcher's mind is, is a complete body of work. So when you submit it to a journal, why not preprint it and put it out there? And in doing so, you get some of the other benefits. So you do get feedback on, on preprints. Not as much as all of us in the field would like, but it, it is increasing. The other thing, and this is something I think we've had in a few episodes so far, is that you get collaborations out of posting preprints. And there's a really, there was a, an example on Twitter, we plugged Twitter a lot on this show, uh, last week or the week before, where somebody had posted a preprint and another group had basically been working on the same thing. They saw that preprint, they all got in touch, and they've ended up publishing jointly instead of one group publishing before the other and scooping them. So you can't, there's a lot of benefits from putting your work out there that a lot of people don't necessarily think about. The other side of this, of course, is that if you put your work out there, you also have this big benefit, and there's a few people looked into this, of people tweeting about your work, of people just noticing your work. And so if you want to have people read your work, which I think everyone who publishes does, posting a preprint gets you more reads. It gets you more attention on Twitter or in the news. And I, I, again, I, I guess I can give an example personally where I've done that. So we published some work in January, February this year that was pre-printed in end of summer last year. When we pre-printed that work, we got a whole bunch of invitations to speak with uh, various news outlets. And we would never have gotten that without the pre-print being there. We'd have had to wait until 
this year and there might not have been as much interest at that point we still got a little bit when we published but. so maybe can i uh, yeah go for it John. maybe i could dive in that so i was gonna say you've mentioned about uh preprints are a way of putting the science out there where exactly is out there where where would you find preprints what, what are the servers so there's there's over 40 preprint servers for biosciences at the moment uh, which is a lot but there's a few main ones that most people will will be familiar with so bioarchive is probably the biggest name in the, the bioscience preprint server area and that was started in 2013, so it's been around for a little while now. MedArchive is the other one that people will be familiar with, mainly because of the pandemic. MedArchive is supposed to be more for uh, sort of clinical work. So I think after the pandemic finally goes away, we might hear a little bit less about that within strict biosciences. You then have Research Square, who we had on in our previous episode. You have uh, OSF, which is not necessarily a single preprint service, more a collection and a, and a, a service. But that's a big one for more things like review papers or white papers you'll find on OSF. Bioarchive are strictly no review papers. And then there's a lot of other ones. So you've got servers that are country specific. So you've got an Africa archive. Uh, I think there's a China archive. And these are really, really useful if you're in one of those countries and you want to publish in your local language, for example. But there's a wide, wide range and it's getting a bit difficult to keep up with them all. We can maybe put a couple of the links in our show notes. Yeah. So if anyone's interested in any of these or hasn't heard about them before, because I'd heard of BioArchive and MedArchive, but hadn't heard of many of the other ones until getting involved with Prelights and this podcast. Yeah, no, I think I was the same. We can link uh, that to people. You touched on a few things um, in your previous answer, Johnny. Um, I just wanted to um, ask you a few questions about, so for example, when you preprint, your work then is out there, right? It's no longer novel. Yeah. So how do you expect any big journals to want to take your work if it's already been published? For example, um, this is one of the th um, questions I got from someone working in my institute, and they mentioned that this can greatly impact on your career. So maybe you're going from a high impact journal with an impact of 40 down to something a lot less and may impact on whether you get a PI position. So Cell Nature Science all accept preprints, I think, now as do most journals out there that you'd want to publish in. I would argue if you're going to publish a paper, you should be much more concerned with the background to the journal and that publisher and whether or not that's something you want to associate yourself with. Because there's a lot of predatory journals who have quite high impact factors you could always publish in. So it's much better to think about your impact on the career, especially if you're going to be a PI. Frankly, do we want more people being PIs who are just going to publish in the high impact journals because it benefits them and nobody can read their work? I would argue it's much better to go with open access journals, but that is a choice and that is very understandable. It is an argument. It is a very good argument that people want to publish in high impact journals because we are still judged on that. One of the benefits I mentioned of preprints is that you can show this as evidence that you're capable of doing work. So if, for example, you're in your, you know, you're then doing your postdoc and you're applying for a PI position or a fellowship and you've been lucky enough to lead some independent work as a postdoc, that would be great to say that on your CV or when you go to an interview for the fellowship. It might be great to have some preliminary data in there for your fellowship application. But nothing beats having work as a completed output out there. And if you want to do that and publish it in Nature, good for you, great. But I would be surprised if you were able to do that towards the end of your postdoc in time for your fellowship. Bearing in mind you're writing your fellowship a year before you actually really submit it. So having the preprint out there actually benefits you because the fellowship committee can see you can not only come up with an idea for some work and at least deliver some of it, but you can deliver it right through to a completed project. Just to give you, again, a bit of a personal example, I know somebody who recently started his lab uh, in Christmas last year, actually, in December, 
he got that position having only posted preprints. Those have been published. They've been slowly coming out since, and they've been published in high-impact journals because he does really cool work. But without those preprints, he would have had nothing to show for his 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 work that t- in that time. So, do you think this kind of worry is kind of not necessarily? It doesn't need to be a worry because if you're saying that the high-impact journals are taking preprints and people can get PI positions with just preprints, then there's maybe not necessarily such a big worry. It's less of a worry. There's still less journal. Worry. There are still journals who will not take preprints because they see that as you've published and it's no longer novel, which is, I think it's completely wrong. But they are they're out there, and it does impact where you might publish if that's one of those journals you would target. But just because some journals will be against you, it doesn't mean that you can't then publish in another journal that's equally as good. There are options out there, and I think again it comes back down to your stance on things. It's nice to publish in Nature, and it still, unfortunately, is the situation where if you publish in Nature, you can kind of build your whole career just on that one paper. And that leads to some amazing scientists. It leads to some very mediocre scientists who are leaning heavily on that one paper. And there's a whole argument to get into about why publishing in Cell Nature Science are something that we shouldn't actually be aiming for anymore. Because, for example, if you publish in Nature, if you've previously been an author on any position on a paper that has been published in Nature, you are more likely to then get another paper in Nature than you are if you have not previously published in Nature. You're more like there's a whole round of evidence now coming out about sort of the old boys club idea of people who know editors or who can lean on editors at journals and get their work published. We need to change the notion that you just because you published in a certain journal that means that work is good. It's much better to put out good work wherever it goes and rely on that. And the system is very very slowly coming over to that idea. I just like to say that I love nature, just in case I ever get the chance to uh, publish in there, so that I can dissociate myself from your comments. <laughs> Emma, quickly do a disclaimer I, as well. I talk about all this stuff very publicly, and it, it hasn't. You know, it might impact me, but it hasn't so far. I mean, we so our COVID work was published. It was uh, featured in three different nature news features, for example. So you know, these journals they are slow at adapting, but they will adapt, and they are coming on board. So another aspect, I guess, of it not. It's already been out. It might not be novel. Is that say you put a preprint out and then you're gonna submit to a journal a bit like a month later, a couple of months later? How do you deal with maybe other bigger labs maybe taking your work? I mean, this is always a worry, right? Yeah. It's, again, when you're like speaking at conferences and things like that. And that that's just it, though, right? Speaking at conferences, you do exactly yeah. the same thing. You get a bit of your story out there, and you can yeah. bet those big labs are there. And it hap- everyone knows a story where someone's been at a conference and someone else has gone and stolen that work. And a big lab can do that work in half, quarter of the time you could do it because they're a big lab. They can switch everyone onto one project. The benefit of pre-printing your work, which you don't get through any other mechanism that people can still steal your ideas, is that your work is public. It's out there. It's assigned a DOI, so it's citable. It's a version of record of your work. And so people can see who did it first. A lot of journals are now doing scoop protection. So if you post a preprint, they accept that you were first rather than the person who publishes first. Not all the journals do that, but again, that's it's slowly coming over to everyone doing that. A lot of the... Um, so uh, Review Commons is one of the big review services. They now have just this week or last week released a thing, again, against scoop protection. So if you publish a preprint, they assume you were first. That you were first. You, you get that novelty. You can never stop a big lab who are aggressive coming in and doing that. Whether you speak at a conference, post a preprint, you basically have to not speak about what you're you're doing until it's published. And even then, if that big lab knows an editor where you've submitted your work, that happens too. 
right? They can still get access to your, maybe they peer review it and they steal it that way. Again, that's happened. There's, there's stories out there of people doing that. It's impossible to fight against, but preprints give you that claim to being first because it's out there. Everyone can see it's out there. So that, uh, yeah, that kind of leads nicely to what I was, uh, what I was going to ask. Um, so this, this is an idea I had the other day, actually based on sort of my work. Um, so I'm hopefully about to get some, some nice kind of structural type data at some point fairly soon that will make a nice sort of mini, mini story of its own. But um, obviously it's only a small part of my like overall bigger work. So my thought was, huh, maybe what you could do is you could publish a preprint with, you know, an initial bit of data as you get it, as long as there's enough to make a sort of a solid manuscript. Um, and then uh, when you get the next sort of chunk of data that makes a solid manuscript, you publish that as a preprint. And then at the end, when you've got the entire story, then you could sort of sew all these preprints together and publish the final peer-reviewed paper. Um, but obviously the kind of flip side of that is you kind of risk leading other labs by the hand as to where you're ultimately headed. And then again, that risks getting scooped. So I, I don't know what your, your so that, thoughts on that are. That's something that ASAP Bio actually are currently trying to figure out. How, so how people use preprint service, because... One way is that you post your preprint at the same time as you submit to a journal, so it's a complete finished article. Another approach is that you publish negative data, which you can't really publish in any kind of journal. Or you can do what you've just said, which is you do this kind of iterative approach where you post your work in a, in a format you're happy with people seeing and sharing, but that you're then going to plan on building on. And there's, a, there's three examples I can think of of people who I know have done that, uh, and I was one of those people. So our COVID work started as a preprint that we intended to build upon once we shared it. And our thinking was we share it now because it's a complete, we could have submitted it to a journal. We felt it was complete and good enough to share. But we also felt that certain part of our analysis was uh, lacking and we wanted to go back and just strengthen that, that data set. And so we did that and it took a couple of months for us to do that. Uh, and then once we'd done that, we updated the preprint and then we submitted it to a journal. Inevitably, exactly what we thought would happen happened in that we had to go back to or did the reviewers asked us to basically to update our entire data set because we were looking at a fixed time period and a few months had elapsed since that time period. So it added a bit of work during peer review, but we anticipated that would happen. And I think it made the paper stronger anyway. But, you know, people, people do that. And I think it comes down to what I said earlier on, which is preprints let you, they put the decision into your hands as to when your work is released. If you're comfortable releasing it at a very early stage, as long as that data is something you stand by, there's no harm in doing that. You do risk people coming along and stealing it, but that ultimately is your decision. And we've seen this in the pandemic. So a lot of the early preprints and papers that were related to the pandemic last year were very, very short. Sometimes it was just a single table or a single figure because people just wanted to get that work out there as quickly as possible. And I think people were less concerned with being scooped because the situation we're in, we needed data out and we needed to build on each other as quickly as we could. In normal times, I would suggest it's probably better to use servers more as a way of releasing your work when you're happy with it and when it's less likely to be stolen until we can come up with a mechanism to get rid of those people, which will never happen. Uh, but, you know, you, you can use them however you want. So um, I've heard a few people mention that they don't want to leave their preprint on BioArchive for too long before they're submitted for a journal. I guess maybe you've kind of answered it in your previous answer, but I can't really think of why that would be, to be honest. I don't know if you, like, why would someone not want to have it on a preprint server? Uh, yeah, I mean... Because are they scared of getting scooped? Probably. Most most people do post and then submit either at the same time or very soon afterwards. Some people leave it up for a month to try and get some feedback and comments, and then they might incorporate that before they go on. Uh, some people leave preprints up and never publish them. 
that is their their end goal. And like that would be if you've got negative data, for example, you might just leave it up forever because you're not going to be able to publish that. But at least it's out there. So do we have to be careful of, say, um, articles or bioarchive articles of just preprints that haven't yet been published? I mean, we should always be sceptical of the science we read. But if, for example, we were looking at a paper from 2018 that was yet to be published and we could reproduce what was showed in the paper in our lab, but it still hadn't been published. So that that is a, a good question. And it's currently something I'm trying to do research on. So it's re- one of the big issues people have with preprints is that you don't know if it's good quality or not. That's the claim. But as you've just said, some of them, you know, you were able to re- reproduce that work. So your thoughts on that preprint must be that it, it's reproducible and it, it's all, it stands up to, to what they say, right? Yeah. So someone in my lab, at least. So at least what you've reproduced is good. Yeah. Now, a bunch of reasons why that might not be published yet. It could be part of a bigger story that they're waiting. Could be that they're sending it around a bunch of journals and it keeps getting going for out for peer review for six months at a time. And then you've got to come back and the editor doesn't want it and you've got to submit it to another journal. It can take years, in some cases, for an article to get published. The benefit, of course, is that you can now read that data and you can reproduce it and build on it. Or it could be that they don't want to publish it. But it, it's not necessarily a warning sign against the quality of the work. You could flip that around and say, I've just read this peer-reviewed paper, but I've not seen anyone else do any work on it for a few years. Is that good yeah. quality? And in many cases, the answer is probably, yeah, it's fine. But I think that it's best not to look at preprints as this different thing. And as you said at the start of the question, treat everything critically and with some sense of scepticism. So that's a, a quite nice leaving off point into talking about peer review sort of versus um, preprints. So obviously we all know there are, there are in fact shortcomings of uh, a peer review. And I think we touched on this a little bit in our, uh, our episode with Michelle from Research Square. But maybe you can kind of just review kind of the, uh, <laughs> review, uh, the shortcomings of peer review. But, you know, it also has a place as well, do we think? Um, maybe you want to discuss that a bit. So it definitely has a place. Um, but let's, let's start with some of the, the shortcomings of peer review. So, and I should say, actually, uh, preprints are not journal peer-reviewed. It doesn't mean they're not peer-reviewed, but we'll, we'll come back to that. So peer review takes a long time. And by a long time, I mean it can easily take over two, three months. And that's because it's becoming increasingly difficult for editors to find people who are going to do the reviewing. And people who are doing the reviewing tend to be quite busy. And inevitably, they never get it back in the two weeks you're given when you asked to review a paper. And so you've got a time delay there. Peer review is not what it's supposed to be. Peer review started, actually it started fairly recently, but if we go back to when the critics of peer prints like to go back to, which is when the Royal Society here in the UK started their first journal. And part of that was they got some papers, they sent it out to other people and said, do we think we should publish this in our journal? That was peer review. It wasn't, do we think we should publish this in our journal? What do you want the experimenters to do to make you happy? which is how it is currently. What time and money would you like them to waste? <laughs> exactly. Peer review at the moment is all about making the reviewers happy, not strengthening your work. Those things should be the same thing, but they're often not. And so, the, again, one of the questions I'm trying to provide evidence for to address is how much money and time are we wasting in peer review when we're not actually improving a paper enough? Or, and what is enough? Because you want your results to re- be robust, and we should be doing that at the, at the start, but is peer review really helping that that much? And if it's not, then we're wasting time, money and people's careers because people are being forced out of science because they haven't got published papers yet in some cases. So that's one aspect is the, the time and the cost. The other problem with peer review is that it's done by often, especially in a small field, people you know. And so it's not as this unbiased thing that people seem to think it is or that it certainly should be. 
And there's plenty of cases, again, the pandemic's been really great at revealing a lot of this, where quite well-known researchers have been able to lean on other people to publish work that, frankly, would never have passed any decent kind of peer review or scrutiny. The other problem with peer review is it's a black box. We don't know what's actually going on in there. So most papers you read, you don't know how that paper's changed from when it was first submitted. It could be that that paper hasn't changed at all, or that paper could have been heavily changed. And often, as anybody who's gone through peer review before, you sometimes give the reviewers data that you don't share in the final paper. And that's just to answer their particular questions. We've done this. That's great for the reviewer, but that would also be useful for people who haven't reviewed your paper. Maybe other people who are reading your paper have that same question and want that data. And so we need to switch peer review from being this black box to being much more transparent and having some accountability in the system. Okay. Do you want to pick up on the thing you said before about preprints are, they're not journal peer reviews, but they are not necessarily, they may have been peer reviewed. Do you want to pick up that point? So preprints have not been peer reviewed as part of a journal organized peer review system, but you can, and you, again, it's something we're increasingly seeing are these services that will review preprints and they do these in a few different ways. So one way is that they will review the preprint and they'll post their review as maybe a comment on the preprint or on a different website and it'll be linked to from the preprint. So you can then go away and you have the preprint, you have the peer review, which is great if you want to actually decide if that preprint's any good or not. The downside of that is it doesn't happen very often. Uh, The other system that's kind of come up, and this one I think has the most potential to not only transform peer review, but to actually start to take off and be used a lot more. And this is where there's one big peer review service. So Review Commons is, is probably the best example here. What they do is they will review the preprint and then the authors have those reviews. So the authors can take those peer reviews to whatever journal will allow them to use them and say, here's my paper, here's the peer reviews, what do you think? And the journal can then say, yeah, okay, we, we accept the, the article as it is with these reviews. Will you make those changes? And then we'll publish it. So you're, you're skipping out a whole review process or two. And often those journals will also be the ones who will publish those peer reviews as well. And so you can see the kind of benefit of where, when you, if, you know, if you can submit your paper with peer review, not only does that speed things up, but you can take that with you as well. So if that journal says, no, we don't want your paper, you can then just go immediately to another journal and say, here's my paper, here's the peer reviews. And so we're seeing that a little bit more as we're coming out of the pandemic. And this is something that really, again, kind of took off during the pandemic. But hopefully that, I, I, I'd be quite happy to see that stick around and grow. I think that sounds like a really, really good um, idea, to be honest. You can get more than just two or three reviewers in that. Yeah. You get a consensus of exactly what it needs rather than two, three individual people that have been asked to do it in two weeks. Yeah, it's a, it's a much better system. And it, it, it travels with you. You don't have to then worry about going under undergoing peer review in every journal you submit because there you go. There's one of the problems with peer review. If you if the journal says no after you've undergone a round of peer review, often you're not allowed to take those reviews with you. And so when you next submit to a journal, you have to do that all over again, which is ridiculous. Some people will incorporate the reviewer comments, but then you're just doing it so that you're going to do all that work to be reviewed again on a, a different bit of work essentially. And so being able to transfer those reviews is hugely helpful i mean a lot of people see the uh, peer review process as building on the work each time though so you're saying you can't take it forward but you do take the work that you've done forward yeah right but you can't take those specific comments and be like i've already underdone some no so what you're doing is you're you're going on you've undergone one round of review you're then submitting fresh to a journal and they see that paper as fresh so they're going to judge you on that topic and so you're going to go into another review if not another two rounds of review 
And is review meant to be building on it each time? Or is peer review meant to be saying this is good enough to publish? Well, aren't we all building on scientific work? Yeah, yeah. But so what I'm trying to get at there is if I have a paper, the story's complete, the data in that paper supports everything I've said, which is rare. It normally needs authors need to tone their language down a little bit. We're all a bit too enthusiastic. But say say I've managed to do that and my paper's ready. It, 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 there's nothing wrong with it. Again, rare. But as a piece of work, that could be published on its own, stands on its own. Now, as follow-up to that, I'd quite like to do maybe an RNA-seq experiment. That would be my next step. At the moment, almost inevitably, the peer reviewers would probably ask for that RNA-seq experiment in that paper. It builds on it, and by all means, it makes it better. But then you're changing the story. It's no longer that paper. It's that paper plus your next paper, right? And that's kind of the situation we seem to be in. It's, we're not being asked to do things that are necessary to that current paper. It'll be a, It's a second paper, yeah. Yeah, it's additional things that make it maybe higher impact makes it higher impact or maybe it makes it an entire maybe it's a second paper's worth of data which is not uncommon to see you know reviewers want to see what's coming next sometimes that's just because they love what they're reading and they're excited which is great but and that's where the editor should step in and say well actually no this that's a separate paper and that i think again that's part part of the problem we're currently in so maybe you could uh to people that maybe maybe don't know maybe suggest uh drop a few names maybe a couple of journals that either allow you to carry uh, reviews forward from other journals or which um, publish the, the peer review comments alongside uh, the papers. So some, uh, some some examples of ones that are leading the way in good practice there. So there's two that are really good for this. Uh, the first one, which I published in and conflict of interest, I have a paper currently under review with. Been in review for a while. But so that is PLOS. PLOS, of course, is a family of journals, but PLOS generally will publish the reviews with the paper. So it's transparent. And they're one of those journals that does try to lead the way in terms of what they'll do and the kind of innovations they'll, they'll trial and just try different things to try and make the process better. PLOS are great, but I think by far the best journal for pushing the boundaries of what journals and journal societies think are acceptable is eLife. Again, conflict of interest, I have published in eLife before. But eLife are doing all kinds of things to push and change the system. The big one, uh, at least the big one recently, is that eLife require you to post a preprint in order to publish there. They will only now review preprints. They won't review paper that has not been preprinted. If all journals did that, then everyone would be preprinting. would be great. And it's not the only thing they do. They, they, eLife, if you follow eLife's uh, editor-in-chief on Twitter, you'll, you'll get a better flavor as to the kind of things he would like to do that he isn't always necessarily able to do. But he was one of those people who were part of that argument about whether or not, when you do a, a paper, whether or not that peer review should be yours and it's so it's the copy of it's it belongs to the author or belongs to the journal or does it belong to the person who did the peer review and it comes back to that idea of can you take those peer reviews with you to another journal and so i if if you want to publish somewhere that is a good journal and is doing all the right things then then i think elife or plus are the places to go good um so i think i'm going to play a bit of devil's advocate here <laughs> and i'm going to ask a couple of um different questions so based on like one of your recent preprints or publications, you suggested that there was no change between the conclusions in a preprint and those that were published. But is this not because they're all publication standard? If we change peer review or there wasn't peer review there, would then we start getting in not finished work and, and maybe not even not unfi- like unfinished work or not reliable work or um, the standard of science would decrease? So I, I, it kind of comes to the point you raised earlier as well. Uh, so... What we did in that paper was we looked, oh, that's the one that's under review. 
we looked at, we took preprints that were published during the pandemic, the early part of the pandemic, and those that were then subsequently published. So preprint within the first month, four months, and published within the four, four months. So that's, it's quite a tight time frame. And by all means, we were there was a selection bias in that. So it was selection bias from the time frame, but also from the fact that these were published. So as you said, it's very possible these are publication quality work to start with. What is difficult to do is to go back and look at those that are never published, because what do you compare them to? Which is what we're, tr that's the question we're currently trying to figure out as a good comparison. So what we're probably going to do is we're going to go back further in the literature and find all those papers that haven't been published within a certain time frame. So maybe if it's on BioArchive for two years and hasn't been published, that'll probably be in that, that, that category. So those that are never published, and we're going to compare it to those preprints that are published and their published versions. So it's a three-way comparison, I guess. And what we want to do there is really judge whether or not those that are not published are different in quality. I suspect not. And that's not a, I'm going into it with this idea of what we're going to find. That's based on the fact that if you publish your work as a scientist, you are judged on your reputation above everything else. So if you're publishing crap, uh, people are going to People are going to notice that. And I say publishing because you can post whatever crap you want on a preprint server, but you can do exactly the same with published work in peer-reviewed journals. You can do that through either predatory journals, where you just pay them and they'll publish whatever, or you can do that as a famous French scientist did during the pandemic by knowing and having influence over the entire editorial board of the journal, who will accept just about every paper you produce. And you can produce thousands of papers that are published in that way, and I dare any scientist at any point in their career to reliably publish thousands of papers and know everything about all those papers. It's not possible. So it's not a problem that is specific to preprints. It exists everywhere. There's going to be some crap out there. Definitely. I've seen some really bad preprints, but the same with the papers. So then you've just said you've seen some really crap preprints. What can be done so we kind of try and mitigate against those um, becoming picked up by news outlets and things like that? That's hard to do. Um, Again, going back to the pandemic as an example, some of the most tweeted about, most communicated in news organisations for preprints were shoddy work. It was very poor quality work. One of those preprints was retracted within like two days, but it was still widely reported on. Equally, we had exactly the same thing with published literature. So some of the most discussed about and shared on news media organisations and things like that, that were published papers were utter crap. Some of those have been retracted, some of them haven't. They've just been given warnings or... The scientific community widely recognises them as being very, very poor quality papers, if not total untrue papers. It's very difficult to mitigate against that for a whole bunch of reasons. And it's not, I don't think this is a thing that preprint servers themselves can take responsibility for. Preprint servers, when you submit your preprint, I said it, get, it gets out quickly. It gets out in bioarchive, their turnaround days is it's, uh, two days turnaround time. But they undergo, it's not pre-reviewed, but they undergo checking. So, you know, is the data there kind of thing. And there's the certain checks it has to go through. So the quality, you can't just publish anything is the point. It's what people think you can. You can't just post anything on pre, on a preprint server. But by all means, you can publish flawed work or poor quality work, or you can post it on a preprint server. And there's not an easy way of mitigating against that. And it, again, when journalists are looking at these things, whose responsibility is that to, to do the mitigation? Is it our responsibility as scientists to say this paper's, or this preprint is utter crap, don't report on it? Which in itself is a news story, often. Or is it the journalist's responsibility who often are not experts? I mean, they can't be experts on everything they report about. But I think there's somewhere in the middle. I think what we need to do, journalists should be making sure when they report on a paper or a preprint, they read up on it and they do the homework. So look at Twitter's great resource for trying to get the general consensus. Twitter again. Twitter again. <laughs> if, it's, if it's a popular paper or a popular preprint. Or ask other scientists. So a lot of the journalists I've been lucky enough to 
to speak with have done that. They'll ask a bunch of different people their opinions and try and get a consensus that way. There's no easy way of doing it. What we need is some kind of way of being able to call out these things as being obviously not good quality so that everyone knows about it. That's not. I don't think there's a way of doing that, really. What I would say is that these things are known. So as long as it's, again, keep coming down to being popular. As long as it's a fairly popular bit of work, whether it's preprint or paper, you can almost guarantee the scientific community will have a consensus on whether it's bad or good. And so if at least as a scientist, if you're in the right circles, or if, if that's your field, you will know. Outside of that, it's a lot harder to do. And if it's not a popular preprint or a popular paper, they're completely fire on the radar. And often nobody will notice until they cite it or they try and replicate it. And then it, it, yeah, there's nothing you knew about those because no one's picking them up. So this kind of leads me quite nicely into the next kind of question that I had, because you're talking about popular preprints and that's how we can kind of see what's what's a good preprint in a way. But actually, are we not kind of adding in our own bias like the top people in the field if we're looking towards them and what they're reading how do you know that maybe an idea that goes against that what their lab does is getting missed and actually is there not a more level playing field than just looking at so i'm not saying that um the experts don't know their stuff but it just might not agree with what they think and something new as i said might fly completely under the radar and it might not align with what's sexy at the moment or what they deem to be sexy. So is is going with the popular, what's popular, the best way to do it? No, not always, <laughs> not, not usually. Um, it's just one way of doing it. So you mentioned leveling the playing field. Twitter and preprints have done that greatly. So one of the problems, and I'm going to flip your words around, and let's pretend someone else asked that question. Let's pretend someone who won a Nobel Prize, for example, asked that question. And the man I'm thinking of has used those, almost those exact words that you've just used to ask that question. But he did it from a perspective of uh, anti-lockdown, anti-COVID, COVID's not real kind of stance. <laughs> Mentioning no names. Mentioning again. no names. <laughs> so there's always going to be things that go against the consensus. You would hope the things that go against the consensus are usually wrong. They're not always, certainly not always. But you'd hope they're wrong because if they're not wrong, then everyone else is wrong. Nobody likes to be wrong. <laughs> but, you know, those things are going to go under the radar often. Those things, and when we come to publishing, those things are often very difficult to publish. So let's say... So there's something, oh, what was it? Okay, so I can't remember the example, but there's been a few things recently where there's been papers that have come out and they've been completely against the consensus. So, okay, so uh, one of those things was recently this week was a preprint posted that said uh, that histone H3 can be transferred between cells. Totally against what everyone would think. And I, I, don't, I haven't read this, so I don't know if it's good work, on, and I'm not an expert, so I, I generally don't know if it's good work or not. I'm going to assume it for the purposes of my argument here, it is. So that goes against consensus. Now, that's the kind of thing that is sexy enough that somewhere like Cell, Nature of Science would probably pick it up and publish it. But let's say it wasn't that sexy. Let's just say it was something that was against the consensus, but it wasn't this big impact thing. That would be quite difficult to publish because you're trying to get it published when the people who are reviewing it and the editors are all those big people who are a part of the consensus. Whereas with a preprint, you can put it out there. Other people can pick it up, maybe pick it up. If it really doesn't get any attention, then obviously they're not gonna, they're going to miss it. But if somebody else picks it up, then maybe they can go, okay, that's kind of interesting. They might replicate it or they might build on it. And then eventually you get to a point where you might be able to change the field. Or at least you'll be able to publish work that starts to change the field. So at least it's out there. Exactly. Before preprints, I think that would have been a much bigger challenge to do. Can I just add a, a follow on to that? So obviously, in theory, if you were you know, sort of swimming against the tide with your 
idea in your paper sort of thing. You, you would assume that the data that you're submitting as well to your paper demonstrates that point. And therefore, it doesn't matter if the idea is against consensus because that data is, is showing that that thing is actually kind of true. But exactly. you know, what, what do we think the power is of people to, even if the data does you know, lead the reader by the hand and show them exactly that this thing that's against the consensus is in fact true, what is the power do we think of people you know, higher up in the field who are potentially reviewing it to, to still stop that from, so, from getting published. So we, we don't have to think about that because there's examples of where <laughs> that has happened. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to get into specifics because it's not worth it. But there are examples where people have done that and they have blocked things being published because they don't like it, because it's not what they think is right. Um, and that happens throughout science, right? If you go right back to before Darwin, right? People picked up long before Darwin about natural selection and evolution and stuff like that. It's just it went against what everyone thought. Or if you go back to uh, the stars and, and go to physics. The idea that the Earth isn't the centre of the solar system and the universe, that went against everyone's ideas. And people stopped all that. People tried to stop all that kind of work coming out. I think as long as your data is solid and it speaks to, and it's correct and it's re reproducible, eventually things will fall into place and people will realise that it's, that's not how things work or the consensus isn't how things work. But having a mechanism whereby you can put that out without people being able to stop you is really, really useful. Preprints allow you to do that. The flip side, of course, is that equally people who are going against consensus just to go against consensus can fabricate data and post it as a preprint. It's not that difficult to fabricate data, unfortunately. And there's been examples of that. How to how, So for example, Research Square has checks in place. Do we, do all preprint servers need to, I mean, you said they have some checks, like Research Square seem to have quite a few. Do other preprint servers also need to maybe get on board with those type of review type yeah. checks? So not all preprint servers can afford to do checks. Some are literally just, you can post it, put your paper out there and it, it's done. There it is. There's no checks. Some checks for BioArchive have their certain checklists that they go through. And actually the people who do that for BioArchive are, are researchers. So I think anyone who is a, heading a lab can be an, a BioArchive affiliate and they screen their papers. Well, so MedArchive, for example, they have a slightly stricter screening process in place and they will reject certain papers that people sometimes are not happy about. People use, It's not hard to find someone on Twitter having a, a go at Richard Sever usually because their preprint was rejected from BioArchive or MedArchive. And that's just because they have certain things in place to try and filter out some of the stuff they don't want to, to post for various reasons. Sometimes it's perfectly good work. It's just... So clinical trial data, for example, MedArchive won't publish stuff like that because they feel it needs to undergo pre-review because it's, if it's directly going to impact patients it, it needs that extra rigor which isn't, there's a place for pre-review but if your preprint server can't afford to do that then that is a risk and that's why I'm slightly against the huge influx we've had of preprint servers I think it's best to have a small number of centralized places that are able to do screening processes and have things in place to remove preprints if they need to be removed or as Michelle was saying she can add little editor notes to preprints if they're being investigated in a journal. And so I think we need, we should really have a small number of servers that are capable of doing those kind of things in place. That helps. So, so I, I have one more thing to ask about sort of, uh, about the kind of peer review side of things. So um, some, some journals do have quite kind of fast turnaround times. Um, so you might, you know, get, get a decision and the review process might kind of get done quite quickly. So if, if you're submitting to a journal that is potentially going to turn around you know, very swiftly and say, yeah, that's fine make these small changes and then it's published and so your, your work's going to get published very quickly is it still worth pre-printing it anyway even though it might only be literally a month or so before your, your work actually gets published formally surely you won't know that though you, won't you wouldn't know you what wouldn't review. know that no. well no you wouldn't but you, you could hedge your bet so you could the 
So if that was the case, if you knew that you submit it and you'll know if there's going to be a yes or no within a month, that yes or no will only be peer review. It's not going to be published in that time. And then the peer review, for all you know, could take six months. But let's let's work on the assumption that your paper goes through within a month and the peer review are just, yeah, it's great. We'll take it as it is. So submit it to publishing in the month. It doesn't happen very often unless you lean on the editors. If that's the case, then one of the biggest benefits of preprints you lose, right? Because you don't need to preprint in order to show you're productive. You just need to wait a month. And I'm sure most of us can wait a month. But then we look at the other side of it. So you're still going to have to pay. Well, either you're going to have to pay an obscene amount of money in order to make your work publicly available, so free to access, or your paper's going to be behind a paywall. Now, a lot of people might not care if their paper's behind a paywall. Funders are pretty quickly coming around to the idea that that's not acceptable anymore with publicly funded research. So chances are you're going to have to pay that money. Let's say it's one of the higher impact journals and they charge £9,500 to, uh, to, to publish your, your paper open access, which is what Nature or was it signs they're currently doing? Somebody somebody check that and cut out the wrong one. Sell a kidney. <laughs> yeah, so you know you can you can sell your kidney. So you're gonna have to pay that money in order to make your work open access. Uh that's a lot of money. That's my that's almost three months of my wage, I think. If you'd like to write in with your answers uh, for guesses as to how much Johnny gets paid, uh, <laughs> the, uh, a special prize. We don't give prizes out when we're not funded well enough to do that yet. Um, <laughs> so you know that's a lot of money to pay and. You can argue against needing to pay that because maybe you don't want your work open access. But if your funder requires it to be open access, you don't have a choice. But a lot of funders will accept you posting a preprint and that being open access. And so why not post your preprint? If it's going to be published in a month, at least your work is then open. Everyone can read it. And as I said, I reckon even then you're probably still going to get more attention on your work than you would if you just published it. That That's not, there's no data for that particularly because there's not a lot of examples of that happening. That's just your feeling. <laughs> I just feel, well, yeah, because you're going to get the initial burst of, oh, I've just posted a preprint. And then a month or so later, you're going to get the other burst of, oh, it's just been published. Wasn't that quick? <laughs> Sounds like I've just given you next uh, next idea for another paper. <laughs> no, I have enough of those on the go. <laughs> um, so we, we've touched on the idea of, you know, uh, you know, potentially kind of peer reviews that are, you know, sort of represent dodgy science um, being picked up on by sort of news outlets and, and kind of run with not because of any kind of agenda, but just because it, it, it's an interesting point and the news outlets run with it without realising that there's a problem with the research behind it. What do we think about the issue of dodgy quality preprints being picked up by people who have got an agenda to push um, and, and using something that is sort of you know, more or less fundamentally incorrect that's been preprinted um, as, as sort of evidence for their, for their point, for their cause? So outside of a pandemic, that probably doesn't happen very often. But inside of a pandemic, I can tell you all about that because we looked at it. So one of the things we did on our paper that was published in back early part of this year was we looked at how those preprints were being used uh, across various places. So news organizations, uh, Twitter hashtags and things like that. And unfortunately, one of the things we found was that certain preprints, not always those that were either later retracted or heavily discredited, but certainly those fell into the category. Certain preprints were being hijacked, as we put it in the paper, by mostly right wing outlets. So news outlets, right-wing leaning people like Donald Trump or by conspiracy groups who for some reason have also thrown themselves in with the right-wing political groups. And what we found was that it was a very clear misuse of these preprints and and it happens with papers too. And so one of the downsides to preprints being open access is that these people can can read them. The flip side of that is if they were relying just on peer-reviewed papers that they couldn't read, they'd be basing all of their evidence on the abstract and second bit of work we've done. The abstracts tend to be at 
they have the key findings in there, but they don't have any of the data in there. And they also tend to be a little bit more hyperbolic, I think. I think authors like, you know, you're always taught when you're writing an abstract to sell your work a little bit and to get the work across. And so there's a tendency maybe to to kind of inflate things a little bit in the abstract, make the conclusions that aren't totally supported by the data. And so I think it's much better that even if it's being misused, that it's being misused with all the data. And just to build on that with someone else's work, somebody else looked at that very question of how are these groups misusing data? So viral visualizations, how misinformation spreads. And what these people found was that it didn't really matter much about the quality of the work or what the work was saying. People who are spreading this misinformation or creating the misinformation, they don't trust scientists, they don't trust politicians, government, don't trust anything. But they will trust the raw data once they've had a go at it. And by that, I mean, they request and they or they demand raw data. So no context to the data, just the raw data. And then they will process it in a way that they think makes sense to them or to get their point across. And then they'll trust that data. And that seems to form the basis of a lot of the misinformation that's out there. So even if you have the data in a paper, they remove all the context. And I think any decent scientist will tell you data without context is utterly meaningless because we can make it fit almost anything we want it to fit. So the problem is not so much preprints or news organizations reporting or anything like that. It's more, I think it's more fundamental than that. And I think a lot of scientists, unfortunately, are not understanding that yet because it's a bigger problem I think we want to acknowledge. We quite like to dismiss these people as perhaps being uneducated or a bit stupid. And that's not the case at all. Uh, so yes, yeah, so obviously a lot of the people you're talking about there are in fact members of the general public, but obviously a particular a particular section, this kind of conspiracy theory types of the segment of the general public. How are the public in general um, interacting with preprints? You know, the, the ones that haven't got an agenda to push, those that are just maybe stumbling across them, because I, th- I think there is some of that happening, especially during the pandemic. But obviously, you know, I don't know how non-scientists really kind of interact with preprints. Mm, so it's it's hard to get a good number on. Like, so when you look at Twitter, for example, that's a good indication as to the general public, because you can get a lot of data out of Twitter. What's kind of difficult to do is attach that data to what that person does. So are they a scientist or are they um, a member of the general public? It's kind of really hard to do that. But it is evidenced from our data and from other people who looked at this that general public are using certainly pandemic preprints. They're reading them. I suspect most people get their information now from Twitter, Facebook or the news. And so a lot of the time they won't necessarily be going to the original source. And certainly outside of a pandemic, I doubt many people from the general public really care about preprints or papers. They're not reading the, the scientific literature unless they're interested in that. And so I think it, it's it's kind of a difficult one to answer. And I've forgotten what you asked. I, I was about, about the general public. So you also just reminded me of something there um, that I think we touched on in the first episode. We were saying about, I guess we class them as members of the general public rather than scientists, is that some kind of science teachers um, do kind of keep a track of things like preprints and and the literature and try and bring it into their kind of, you know, school age teaching of science. Um, so is that maybe somewhere where you've got people that you would technically class as, you know, general public interacting with preprints? I guess um, I would say I kind of agree. I think one of the ways we can kind of help would be to get obviously more science education. But exactly how we do this is a, a big issue. Like, how do we get a, a non-science expert involved with science when maybe they haven't studied it since GCSE. And whose job is that, right? Yeah. Because, you know, all, all the SciCom work we do is not exactly recognised. We don't get promoted for doing any of this. Nobody, this is often seen as a distraction from lab work, which it isn't. This is a really important part of being a scientist is communicating not just what you do in the lab or your work, but 
other people's work and what is good or not good in a pandemic or how science works and there's a few ways you could get you can go into schools scientists go into schools and give talks and and do a little bit like that it'd be nice to see a better interaction between local universities and schools so at Sheffield actually Sheffield did this with their local schools they would often have people who work in the lab go out to the schools for a day and do sort of activities but that should be much more common around the world right universities are or used to be sort of what towns were built around so Oxford and Cambridge the whole thing is built around the universities which if you live there is not always great but there's no reason we can't have that really close interaction we, why can't we have evenings where the general public come in for maybe a basic science lecture or this is how science works not everyone's going to do it but there's certain there's, I know from, from experience that we've done again largely at Sheffield where we hold these kind of evenings you, you do get a lot of interest people do want to come and know and find out more so maybe that's one way of doing it writing stuff so writing opinion pieces as a scientist that helps uh, podcast podcast probably helps <laughs> if you're uh, if you're mad enough to start a podcast that's one way of contributing to this <laughs> if you're mad enough to do that but you know it, it's it, it helps. I know that Newcastle University did this open science lectures and I, as an A-level student, used to go to them to, I guess, learn a bit more, get an idea about the science um, before I went to university. And I still get <laughs> letters from them. So they're still going on and they still t- give me their time, like, um, like timetable and I really enjoyed them. But again, it's one of those things that we have to learn to present to the right audience. Like we can't give a high level talk at one of those things, but we... We need to no. make, well, we need more practice and we need to do it more, basically. We do, exactly. And, you know, we need to, it needs to be recognised, otherwise we're not going to do it because so, we're so busy. Scientists, I think there's a, in fact, I know there's a, I've had this once with someone I met who seemed to have this impression that scientists and academics do nothing all day because the the notion that we're in charge of our own time, which is wrong, our experiments dictate. <laughs> the cells time. tell us. Yeah, cells <laughs> tell us when we're working <laughs> on weekends. So this idea that we're in charge of our own time and we can just flit in and out whenever we want. You know, sometimes I might not go to work until 10 o'clock that day. Other days, as today, we're recording on a Saturday. I'm in work after this recording. I was in work before the recording. (laughs) And that's just how it falls. Exactly. There you go. It just, it falls that way. And scientists are obscenely overworked in general. And we're recognized for very little of that work. In fact, we're recognized for publications. Uh, That's it. But there's much more that we do uh, outside of that. So we need recognition. Otherwise, we're not going to do it unfortunately, or only a small number of people can do it. And the other thing is you need to make sure the right people are doing it. You don't want anyone just talking to everyone. And we've seen that with the pandemic. You know, if you're not an expert on something, don't comment on it. It's not needed. Leave it to the people who are experts. If you're good at SciComm, go out and do it and be recognized for it because we need people who are good at doing that. If you're not good at it, practice it. And if you don't like it, don't do it. It's fine. Not everyone needs to do it. But I just, I think it's a nice idea that we do appreciate these things more and we do it as often as we can i'm trying at the moment to i've tried everywhere i've been to try and get like a christmas lecture series going up at the universities i would love to see every university at christmas time do a series of lectures on just fun things for like family days like the royal society uh, the royal society do but more local i'm so going to steal that idea and go to lstm and uh, suggest they do this so uh, (laughs) if anyone high up in lstm happens by some miracle to be listening to this uh... you now know it was my idea (laughs) as long you know as, as long as stuff gets out there I, I don't care so we we've just covered all the questions that you both have or that people you know have what are your opinion on preprints why i mean have you both published i've published a preprint 
I've not. I've, I've, I've been. My, I think we're going. This is why I brought that question up earlier um, about the quick turnaround time. Yeah. The, the initial, I'm about to submit the, the work for my PhD, and it's to a journal that has a fairly fast turnaround time. So my supervisor's sort of for now saying, you know, we, we probably won't reprint it. But obviously, my thought would be then if we get rejected from that and go to a different journal, um, or we think we get, it will then get preprinted. So yeah, so that's, that's my interaction with preprints so, so far. So you, you both you both have spent a lot of time listening to me talk about preprints long before we did the podcast because I've been involved in this for a while now. I'm involved in a lot of things. <laughs> it's a problem. Uh, it is a problem. But you've both heard me talk about it a lot and mainly from the perspective of we should all be doing this and I don't understand why all these people are not doing it and it's more of a complaining perspective, I guess, that you guys have to deal with. <laughs> Never. But Always. Emma is slightly more on board because Emma pre-lights now, so you're more within the you're, I'm dragging you in the field with me and now John with the podcast is also being dragged yeah. in with us so let's see what you think of preprints Emma wh why 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 did you preprint I mean would you do it again yeah what 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 do you see there as, as their benefits honestly I didn't get much choice in whether I preprinted or not my supervisor just preprinted and I at that point didn't really know much about it apart from from Johnny but because I ended up like learning more and hearing about preprints than actually how good it is and how it, it does do a lot for early career researchers. It inspired me to kind of get more involved. Um, I also really like that. So for example, this paper that was uh, preprinted was from my PhD and I kind of left my PhD without having published anything. It makes me feel more confident that I'll actually get some body of work out there when I finish my postdoc because of preprints. And I think that that is great. And I think if we can make science open to everyone, I think that's also really important because paywalls are just, they exclude exclude people. And they exclude and, and basically make it kind of an elite, maybe middle class upwards thing to be able to do. And actually we need to be involving all walks of life in science communications. So often it's not all, the first time people preprint often isn't their choice. It is just the PI decides that's what we're doing. Which is often, I mean, ultimately, that's the decision anyway. The senior author decides where the paper goes. Yeah. I think it's always good to, if the PI doesn't normally preprint, try and try and push that. But ultimately, it's not your choice. You know, one of the points you made there about accessibility and it being elite. If you're part of the developing world, for example, you cannot afford the subscription cost of the journals. And so you don't have access to a lot of this work. This is why SiteHub is so widely used, because it gives you access. The other reason, of course, is that it gives you access with one link rather than clicking through to log in through your website, oh. through your university website to come back to the paper to then download another few, like five buttons you've got to click on before you How get How many hours paper. of our lives have we lost to that process? Journals <laughs> really need to sort that out. I know. Um, and then the other side, so I don't know if you've both seen the paywall movie or not, but if not, I'm hoping to get the guy who produced and, and made that movie on as one of the specials. That look, it was, it's a little, a couple of years old now, but um, it looked at the publishing industry in science and academia. And so... Do we want to be giving our money to these companies that are making profits in excess of like 40%, which is more than Google or Amazon make or Apple, who give us kind of useful tools in return. We actually get something back from them. We get nothing back from the publishers. It's a bit of a, I don't understand how journals do it, to be honest. It's a scam. I, I didn't want to it's, say scam, but like scam. we do all the work and then we pay to publish in their journal exactly. i've seen so many um i've seen so many people on twitter uh, say uh, sort of quoting anecdotes of where family members have asked them as scientists oh so how much do you get paid every time uh, one of your papers gets published <laughs> in a journal and then just having to kind of <laughs> sheepishly answer that uh, that's not how it works no we yeah. paid them uh yeah three months of my salary went to that paper it was mm -hmm. great uh and i see that all the time too. but that's one of the things where you know 
the general public don't understand it. And I think if the general public, if this was in the public consciousness, it wouldn't happen because it's such a horrific waste of money. And it makes no sense that we should do all the work, get paid for none of the work we do, and then pay to then not only publish our work, but then to access it again. You can publish, we, we can publish a paper. And if we haven't made it open access, technically to get access to our own work, we can't just download it. We've got to pay the 45, 70 quid it costs to download a single article or the subscription can charge to the journal to get our own work back to read. This is this is probably something that's worth saying on the podcast because I know it's one of those things that is, again, not to mention Twitter again, but it is mentioned on Twitter. Um, but really just, just, stop <laughs> but just, just so we can say uh, on the podcast to say that we, we put this message out there as well. Quite often, if you want to read a paper and it's behind a paywall, if you email one of the authors, they will be quite happy to send you a PDF of the paper or even the, you know, the raw manuscript or something you know, without you having to subscribe to an extra journal that your institution doesn't cover. Um, yeah. so, so do just have a go. The worst, the worst that can happen is they say no. Email authors, ask them for their papers. They will give you them for free most of the time. If, you, if, if you've read it and you liked it, if you send them a follow-up email saying that was great, we love that even more and we'll answer all questions you ever have from that point <laughs> onwards. So, John, what, what, what are your thoughts on preprints? My thoughts on preprints? I, I, I don't think I ever had reservations about preprints. I think I went from being sort of ambivalent to slowly uh, kind of realising, yeah, they're, no, they're a good thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember when I first became conscious of, of preprints. Um, when I first complained at you about them? No, it's sometime during my PhD, I remember just coming, you know, you'd search for something, you'd see an article title come up on Google, and then you'd open it and find it was this kind of strange kind of pre-submission format pdf that you were looking at i think sort of eventually clocked that oh these are these are these are something separate that's out there as well you know so yeah and then i think i remember uh, certainly you know when i was applying for postdocs uh, one of our one of our mutual friends being like you must get a preprint out it will increase your chances increase your chances you must get a preprint out because uh, i think he'd preprinted as well so this was the point which i you know i actually knew someone then that had preprinted and became more aware of them but now i've i don't think i've ever had reservations like i said I've just gone from not knowing a lot to kind of quietly and slowly getting educated i'm not going to say educating myself just kind of you know by accident stumbling across the sort of pros of preprinting um, you can't be around me without getting across mm. well exactly <laughs> i have to say that i did have reservations to start with and obviously mm. i've come around uh, a lot more basically a lot of the questions i've asked today are things that i myself have thought and actually knowing more about preprints and knowing about all of these things like the, there are checks there are, it is really good for us. It doesn't matter that it's not in a massively high impact journal. Like I, I'm one of those now that I'm like, I just want it out there. So it's really nice to learn and know because I was like, oh, well, it's not peer reviewed, right? So we can't be like, mm. we can't know that it's it's real or good science, but that's not true at all, really, <laughs> as we've explained in this podcast. I, I think I think the reason I didn't have that as a reservation to begin with was because I probably naively assumed that everyone would would look at a preprint and go, oh well, it's a preprint, so I will take this with a pinch of salt. But I'm not sure. Again, I think maybe there are people out there that don't necessarily. But everyone, yeah, we should be critical of everything. Keep hitting people over the head with <laughs> peer reviewed is not validation no, exactly. or quality or anything like that. We need to stop thinking of peer reviewed literature mm. as having that badge of this is great. And instead, thinking, treat as I said in a, I think I was doing a talk or something, something recently that someone thought was a great thing. Flip it around and treat papers more like preprints. So treat them with scrutiny and with a critical eye, the way you would a preprint, which is perfectly justified. You should. I think on that point we should probably end it. I think that's. I think we've got everything there. I think that's I think. a great point to end it on. That's a, that's a good one. So, so that that was a very uh, pro preprint episode and long. <laughs> But we'll see how much Sean can cut it down. Um, <laughs> but 
So people, people, we need to remind everyone to to actually start rating us. We've now got a few episodes. I think it, it, people are at the point where you can decide if you like us or not. Hopefully you do. But re- leaving us ratings is, is really, really helpful because not only does it get us to, to climb the charts and, you know, we're, we love metrics. Who doesn't, which scientist doesn't love a metric? Uh, but it helps us in just not only justifying the costs that we've already had. So we've, the, the little advert you have in every episode tells you that our ASAP Bio are very kindly sponsoring us. But after our first year, we're then going to have to look for funding ourselves. So it helps us get that backing that we need to, to keep going after the first year. And I know it's very early to be thinking about that, but you've got to think about these things. So with that note, I think we're all done. It's been fun to be in front of the microphone for once. I think that's our best episode so far. I know. I love Not it. that we're biased. I'm leaving I this bit in. Recording. I'm just yeah, don't, <laughs> don't stop recording because I, I, yeah, I'm definitely going to... Uh, sorry, who's going to leave all of this in? <laughs> I'd, a couple of people have commented on, on, uh, on, on the editing so far and said it's been good. So I would just like to say thank you. Where do I find out about the different bioarchived licenses? This CC, BY, CDXY nonsense is driving me nuts. ASAP Bio have a resource for that. Ugh, that's your answer to everything. That's because they have everything you need to know about preprints. Sure, they probably have the basics, like info on the preprint service, but what else is there? There's so much more. Looking to post a preprint, but not sure what different journal policies are? They have a collection to help you out with that. There are meetings around preprints and associated services. If you want to know how preprint adoption has changed over time, there's even a page on that. And COVID? They have a big section on preprints and the pandemic, plus some really cool infographics for communicating preprints. And university policies? Surely they don't have that. They collect uni policies where possible. Okay, okay, they do sound pretty impressive, but is it not a bit of an echo chamber? It can be, but ASAP Bio also engage with people who don't love preprints and have concerns. So we had an excellent discussion on this very topic a couple of months ago. Oh, is there anything ASAP Bio don't do? Honestly, no, they're so nice over there. They were so quick to jump in and support this show. It's your one-stop shop for info on preprints and open science initiatives. So head over to asapbio.org to learn more and subscribe to their newsletter for the latest in preprint news. If you want a deeper dive into the world of preprints, then look out for the next recruitment of ASAP Bio Fellows. Okay, and that is the show. If you enjoyed listening, then hit that subscribe button for more and leave us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening on. You can reach out to us on Twitter at MotionPod or online at preprintsinmotion.com. Didn't enjoy that? Well, we're all scientists here, so send us your review and let us know what works or what you'd like to hear more of, or less of. But until next time, have a good week. <laughs>